I fall from twiddly dee and twiddly dum. We get into that Roddy Piper audiobook this week and then the Bolivian book next week. As we get into the Roddy Roddy Piper biography. Never heard on audio before, so come to SFS Podcast at Catch. Cast box, not cat box. No, I got no boxes for cats today, cause I haven't killed any yet. But um, yes, cast box SFS for podcast or SFS podcast. I think it's episode sixteen, as I mentioned earlier. Anyway, here we go. Television and film producer Mitch Ackerman has watched Roddy on television in LA and on the MSG network out there in New York, where he'd grown up. Ackerman had already enjoyed great success with shows like Knott's Landing, Dallas and Falcon Crest, and he thought wrestling's increasingly popularity was making it prime for some sort of screen treatment. He and Roddy had a friend in common, so with no particular agenda, Ackerman arranged to meet Roddy one evening at the Olympics in Los Angeles while Roddy was on the road. Ackerman got a quick education in the life as wrestling's most hated heel. Ackerman said, We set up for me to meet him after the matches by the locker room. He was the last match. This is when he was a bad guy. And his program at that point was Jimmy Superfly Snooker. He was really beating the crap out of him. Usually, you see back and forth in a match. But this one, there wasn't any back and forth. Roddy emerged from the dressing room and asked, So where's your car park? Ackerman had parked where the wrestlers parked, thinking that made sense, since he was collecting Roddy after the show. Roddy said, Okay, well, look. When we get out, we just make a beeline straight to your car. Get in and just take off. Sure enough, when they left the Olympic, several dozen fans were waiting outside. They didn't want autographs. Roddy and Ackerman raced to the brand new Jaguar and the fans followed, booing and throwing garbage at them. Unfortunately, Ackerman had parked facing the building. He had to back out before he could take off and that was impossible. The mob of fans surrounded them and started banging on the windows and climbing all over Ackerman's new car. Roddy said, I'm going to get out. I'll go back into the arena. When you're able to get out of here, pull up to the door. Roddy opened the car door hard against the press on his people on his side. As they went tumbling onto the pavement, he bolted into the Olympic. Ackerman waited until most of the crowd dispersed, then backed out and drove up to the door. 
I come on and said, I honked the horn and he jumped in. I put the pedal to the metal. I just took off. It was scary. It wasn't the last time that something like that happened. Fame or infamy was making life dangerous in New York too. Greg Dahama Valentine had come to the WWF and one night he was giving Roddy a lift home from Madison Square Garden. Roddy said, We couldn't get out! Referring to the parking exit under the garden. People out there were rocking the car so Gregory just put the hammer down, slips over to the curb, gets on the sidewalk, the other side. I don't know how we didn't hit somebody. Greg the Hammer Valentine said, Just having to go over like nothing ever happened. I couldn't believe I did it either. Without hitting somebody, going down into the subway entrance. We have angels watching us. Cowboy Bob Orton Jr. or Ace as Roddy had started calling him joined Piper's Pit as Roddy's bodyguard. Orton became a fixture in his cowboy hat and his frilled vest always manoeuvring helps to stand threateningly behind Roddy's guest. Piper's Pit would have been nothing without Ace as Roddy would recall in an interview. As Roddy said, Ace was there for a couple of reasons. One it being he one tough boy. Two, I don't know anybody that didn't outperform Bob Orton in that ring in any kind of way. We complimented each other. Having met in Charlotte, Roddy and Orton were now getting along famously in New York, even before Orton's run in the Piper's Pit. Both lived in Woodbridge and Orton was giving him a ride home after a long day of shooting in the Powell Keepsea, somewhere on the New Jersey Turnpike after midnight. They realised they were hungry and decided to hang a left for Japanese food. Roddy said, Bobby's driving, I'm just shotgun. We find a sushi place right in downtown Manhattan. We're so happy. After an hour of eating and drinking, they stroll contendingly outside into the cold, ready to go home. But they're greeted by an unexpected sight. Orton's car is double parked and there are police around it. They've got a couple of men in handcuffs. Roddy's Halliburton, a kind of briefcase wrestlers converted, was still where he'd left it in the back seat. But there was glass in the back seat too and the engine was running. It was late and they'd had a few beers. They took a moment to catch one. Roddy said. We got up to the car. Orton must have left the car with the keys in the ignition. With the car running, I thought, well, shit, it was cold. I must have wanted to leave the heater on. Then the cops wanted to know if we wanted the guys arrested. It clicked. Two men had broken into the car, hotwired it, and been caught by police when they tried to drive it away. 
I don't blame them, joked Harton. I kind of tried it too, just to get out the cold. Orton and Roddy refused to press charges. It was late, and they didn't need to hassle. The swarm of police looked in on amazement as the arresting officers let the thieves go. These 147 NY police around the car. Are you shitting me? We got into the car and just went the fuck home. Throughout the year of 1984, Roddy was involved in another feud that exposed McMahon's colourful stable to even more fans. Pop star Cindy Lauper was one of the biggest names in music at the time. Thanks to her album She's So Unusual and its billboard chat topping singles with her mulletude hair and New York accent, she fit right in with the wrestlers. She became friends with Captain Lou Abano, who appeared in the video for Girls Just Wanna Have Fun. In his 50s den, Albano was known to the WWF audiences as a manager, and his relationship with Lauper was the linchpin of what became known as the Rock and Wrestling Connection. Lauper appeared on Piper's Pit in a segment during which Roddy mostly behaved himself. Albano, however, began arguing on camera that he was responsible for Lauper's success. She barked and the two had a falling out. To settle their differences, she challenged Albano to select a woman wrestler to meet the female wrestler of her choosing. The brawl to end it all featured a main event in which Albano's pick, WWF, Women's Champion the Fabulous Muller lost her belt, which she held for 28 years to Lauper's pick, Wendy Richter. The women's match headlined a card filled with staples like Sergeant Slaughter, Hulk Hogan and Greg the Hammer Valentine, but only the main event was broadcast on MTV. It is a stunning example of wrestling's new popularity. It earned a 9.0 rating. MTV's highest rated program to date. Lauper and Albano eventually made nice with champion Hulk Hogan often in the mix. At Madison Square Garden she appeared in the ring to give Albano a gold and platinum record, mounted, framed under glass. She then gave another to Hulk Hogan who accepted it on behalf of the WWF. The feel-good ceremony went predictably long when Cowboy Bob Orton appeared ringside and Roddy barged onto the mat. Before the assembly made sense of Roddy's presence, he grabbed the mounted records and smashed them over the manager's head. Lauper rushed to the falling Albano and found herself against Roddy's boot with what would for years come called a kick. Roddy lifted her off Albano and sent her sprawling across the mat. Then Roddy Bondi slammed her manager Dave Wolf. 
Hulk Hogan returned to the ring and Roddy slipped through the ropes on the other side where Orton was watching with the crowd exploding around them they left for the dressing rooms. The bit of extracurricular theatre had set the table for a brand new grudge one that in turn would clear the way for a feast the likes which would eclipse the success of NWA's Starcade or any event in professional wrestling's history. George Scott, the Charlotte Booker who brought Roddy into the Mid-Atlantic, soon followed the country's top talent to New York where he became assistant booker for the WWF. He had shown a lot of grace to Roddy and it had been aspired to Roddy to reply in kind. George Scott, Scottish born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario, had a son named Brian, and one night in Charlotte, Brian had pulled his Cadillac up to Roddy outside a nightclub and said, Matt, there is the reason you're here. Roddy took it as a slight and punched in Scott's windshield. The car lurched ahead, so Roddy ran to his own Cadillac to give chase, just as Jack Briscoe, who had a cast on one leg, was trying to get into Roddy's passenger seat. As Roddy told it, he hit the gas while the door was still open, but the Cadillac's reels were pointed hard to one side, and it accelerated in an unexpected direction, ramming Byron Scott's Cadillac and sending Briscoe tumbling out of the passenger's door of Roddy's car. The incident landed Roddy in court. There, George Scott said, You know, I'm responsible for bringing Roddy in here. The implication was he should take some responsibility for what Roddy did and the pressures he was under. That struck Roddy as about as solid as Anything a man could say. Roddy said to Elder Scott, You're right, sir. I apologise. The matter was settled. When George Scott came to New York, he didn't seem to hold a grudge. In a moment, and in all spacious as it was crucial for the future of pro wrestling, Scott threw an invitation Roddy's way. As the studios in Powell Keep Sea, Roddy was walking down the hall towards the washroom. Scott was following close behind. Scott said to Roddy, You want to fight Mr. T? Roddy said, Sure! we got to go bathroom. It was as simple as that. From all the past wrestlers, from Lou Fez to Harley Race, professional wrestling had crowned many great technicians and tough-as-nail street fighters as champions, but no one had ever had a champion like Hulk Hogan. The bronze-skinned, blonde-haired, muscle-bound giant towered over the old-school wrestlers who lingered in the new WWF. George the Animal Steel or Bruno Samantino and Hogan worked the camera like a few of the new giants Matt Mann was bringing into his orbit. King Kong Bundy or Bundy's frequent tag partner Big John Studd for example matched with his 
all-American image urging kids to say their prayers and take their vitamins. The champion was an oversized bundle of genetic energy. The perfect media darling to drive Vince McMahon's promotion and avenge the humiliation of Cindy Lauper and Dave Wolf. In February 1985, the principals of this drama gathered at a Madison Square Garden for the war to settle the score. The fact that it was Roddy's title shot that was mostly lost in the larger narrative. This was Hogan's chance to defend the rock and wrestling connection. More than that, Hulk Hogan was defending the heart and soul that fans had invested into wrestling and its ascendance into pop culture promised land. The main event looked a little like Roddy's first big match 10 years earlier. He was escorted to the ring by the city of New York Society Police Pipe Band playing Scotland the Brave. During commentary, legendary announcer Mean Gene Oakland referred to them as the clan, if you will, of Mr. Piper. The night had other echoes of Roddy's past, including an opening match featuring Johnny Rods, who was as Java Rook, not only thrashed a much younger Roddy back in LA, but provided the occasion for Roddy's first stint as a manager, the gig that had put him over in Southern California. Jimmy Superfly Snooker exacted a sort of revenge by proxying during the undercard by defeating Cowboy Bob Orton. Orton collided with the corner post during the match after which he wore a cast, his forearm supposedly broken. The cast and his refusal to take it off long after any legitimate injury would have healed gave rise to some great gags on Tuesday Night Titans, McMahon's own wrestling talk show. In one episode, he welcomed a doubtful Roddy and Bob Orton as guests and surprised them with a visit to TNT's resident doctor who examined Orton and revealed x-rays that clearly showed a healthy forearm. Vowling in the usefulness of the cast in a fight, the heels rejected the doctor's opinion, questioned his education and called him quack. McMahon wrote as many celebrities in his promotion as he could. Sports broadcaster Bob Cortaz joined the war as guest ring announcer Mr. T the star of the A-team and the villain of Rocky III which introduced Hogan as mainstream in the movie which he played Thunderlips. Was it Mr. T was in the front row to pump up his longtime friends in the words of Mean Gene Oakland on Hogan's way to the ling. Per is here, Oakland enthused before the match. Glorious Dane, 
The match began with a fury of punches in Hogan's favour until Roddy Piper turned it around and began to lay it on to the champion. As the action progressed, Mean Gene Oakland exclaimed, Danny DeVito, I see Joe Pisopo and Danny DeVito both standing on their feet. After Mr. Wonderful, Paul Orndorff crashed the match and double-teamed Hogan with Roddy Piper. Lauper climbed onto the apron to protest. A hundred and four pound little gal ain't going to do anything to these men. Shouted Mean Gene Oakland. His uniquely understated hyper ball in a glorious display all night. She'll get killed in there. Get her out of there. Added fellow commentator Gorilla Monsoon. Mr. T then climbed out of the crowd and climbed onto the apron to defend Lauper, who had tried to ward off advancing heels while her hapless manager, Dave Wolf was in turn trying to talk her down before Roddy and Mr. Wonderful got their hands on her. The rapperous din of the crowd swelled when Hulk Hogan revived to save Mr. T and chase away the heels. The next and inevitable main event was obvious. The score had not been settled, but the job had been done. The crowd had been baited. When word got out that Roddy Piper's feud with Hulk Hogan had just gotten even larger, demand to see it resolved would exceed anything Madison Square Garden could accommodate. Vince McMahon had seen Crockett's rejoinder to the showdown at Shear and McMahon's next volley would leave no doubt who had won the real war in pro wrestling. Roddy Piper said, I'm the littlest and the last Napoleon Rod. Roddy probably wasn't the very smallest wrestler in the WWF but he was the hardest for McMahon to bring to heel. In the middle of March, a month after the war to settle the score, Roddy still was working without a contract. Vince McMahon was insistent he sign one, but Roddy Piper refused. He worked all over the country and abroad. His stock was high. He saw no benefit or swelling allegiance to a single employer. Anyone anywhere would pay him to wrestle. Roddy sat down with Vince McMahon in a place he remembered looking like a warehouse, probably backstage at the Powell Keepsea Studios. The contract in front of him filled only a single sheet of paper. Roddy said no. All the other wrestlers working in the WWF were under contract now. But Roddy knew that Vince McMahon had bet the value of the promotion, not to mention his own house, on the next big event. Fans were desperate for a resolution to the Piper-Hogan feud. Order had to be restored. But Roddy knew pro wrestling's greatest rule, never restore order. Order is boring, and boring 
don't sell tickets. Then he thought again. There was going to be merchandise to sell. T-shirt, toys, dolls, myriad other ways to earn money that weren't part of working in any other territory he had worked before. And there always the remote possibility that Vince McMahon might get fed up and try to do without him. Roddy was ambitious. He wanted in on what was coming. So Roddy signed the contract. Of course, that didn't mean he was going to accept without question whatever role Vince McMahon had in mind for him. Roddy Piper said. Vince McMahon... Hulk Hogan and Pat Patterson were in the office and I'm on the phone. Recalling how they had planned the main event of the mega event McMahon was putting up to make or break his company, WrestleMania. The greatest wrestling event of all time. As its tagline went, he listened to how others saw the match playing out, and he disagreed vehemently. As management saw it, the match went like this. On the big comeback, banged their heads together. Typical match that you could think of. Throw them together and they'll crash. Get down and roll their legs. In the finish, they were plotting Roddy would at long last be pinned and defeated by the heroes within the rules deferred justice at last will be served Roddy said I am saying emphatically I'm saying you're wrong you're fucking wrong all wrong I'm telling you it's the wrong way Roddy had fought signing a contract and now he wanted to run the biggest match in history of pro wrestling. Vince says, well, Hot Rod, there's many right things way to do a match. It's either the easy way or the hard way, Mr. Piper. Roddy was admitted and said to Vince, I said I'm telling you you're wrong, Vince. Wait, wait. I'm screaming at them. Roddy was concerned about two things. First, if Mr. T tried wrestling like the professionals, something he had never done, he'd make it look phony right when more eyes than ever were on the business. Roddy said, Mr. T, he wanted to come in and bang heads around, make dolls and fun, and then go home and laugh. The stage still sour in his mouth decades later from the first WrestleMania. Roddy said, That's why I didn't get along with Mr. T right away. I insisted with Vince. I said, Vince, there's no only one right way to do it. Keep it amateur. He wants to go in there and throw punches and stuff. He's going to look like shit. And I'm going to get mad. And it's not going to work. You've got your whole company bet on this. 
By this time, Roddy Piper and Brett the Hitman Hart had become kind of friends who talked late into the night in hotel rooms on the phone sharing their concerns about work and family. Brett Hart understood the second reason why Roddy was worried. Brett Hart would say, He was very defensive about the wrestlers and the business. And he was very distrustful of the office, their motives and their susceptibility to doing the wrong things. The way they used to push guys and make guys based on such flimsy logic sometimes. Roddy was always the guy that earned it, everything he got and defended his position to the end. You couldn't get him to change his mind about something like that. With Mr. T, I think there was a lot of pressure on Roddy to comply and let Mr. T go over on him. Roddy worried that if Mr. T pinned him, a TV star could waltz into the ring and beat the WWF top contender for the WWF title. Then no gimmick or celebrity appearance could repair the damage that decision would do to the whole business of pro wrestling. Never mind the WWF. Mr. T would move on. That feather forever in his cap and the wrestlers would look, be left looking like pushovers. Roddy was old school. If you wore a belt and even if you didn't. When you were in a bar and tough guys called you on it, you fought them, plain and simple. And if they beat you up and the promoter found out, you'd lose the belt and probably your job too. In the territories, the illusions of pro wrestling have to be maintained if the feuds and hostilities in the ring were going to keep filling arenas. For all the willful blindness that went into watching pro wrestlings, no fan should ever doubt that the wrestlers were genuine tough guys. Further, Roddy saw no reason to think the WWF was immune to the cycles of fortune and loss experienced by every other territory he worked in. Bret Hart said, Territories got red hot and then they died. All the time. It really kept hard to keep the momentum going. Of course there was another possible finish to the match. Roddy losing to Hogan. So as long as Mr T was a minor playing in the defeat. Wrestling would rev leverage his celebrity without losing its credibility. As home to the toughest characters on the planet. Interest might not collapse the way it would if Roddy lost to T, but interest in Roddy as a top contender, or at least an ever dangerous menace, would be done. Roddy wasn't sure that they'd finish the match, but he was sure as hell wasn't taking the fall, especially to Mr. T. On the last Sunday of March, Madison Square Garden filled again. Mr. T's mohawk was only an aspect of his usually flamboyant self on display that night. 
No feather earrings or gold chains. He was stripped down to the essentials to fit in with the guys who made their living in their underwear. Vince McMahon had brought in even more celebrities. Guest referee, boxing legend Muhammad Ali patrolled ringside in the event of extracurricular trouble. Bob Orton was guest timekeeper. Liberace seemed like an odd fit, save for the fact that he was one of the few stars in the country as camp as McMahon's wrestlers. He danced with the Rockets in the ring and rang a tiny crystal bell to start the match. New York Yankees manager Billy Martin announced the wrestlers. Cowboy Bob Orton was ringside, so was Jimmy Superfly Snooker, an ideal counter to Cowboy Bob. Both quite but excellent performance performances. I mean, both quiet and excellent performers. The beard. McMahon took no chances with his referee. First Intercontinental of all champion of all time, Pat Patterson. The former wrestler who played a crucial role in managing the WWF made sure the pre-ordained chaos was convincing. The opening moments, several minutes, really off the match, were as perfectly an example of ring psychology as Roddy had ever staged. He had lots of help. Hulk Hogan and Mr. Wonderful were no slouches at working the crowd, and Mr. T was a television star. After a long standoff before the bell went off, Mr. Wonderful grabbed a broom from an attendant who was trying to clean up all the garbage tossed into the ring. He snapped the broom over his knee before he... Roddy Piper and Bob Orton finally retreated to their corner. With giddy embraces they set up to begin with Mr. Wonderful and Hulk Hogan in the ring. They could have started the match right there but the stage was too big and too bright to settle for such a simple beginning. Roddy became frantic waving Mr. Wonderful over to tag him in. With a slow high tag, Mr. Wonderful obliged. Roddy got in the ring with the champ. Right there, the crowd went nuts. So badly wanted Roddy in the ring. But then, Mr. T started jumping up and down, hoping for Hulk Hogan to tag him, sensing the poetic justice offered by the moment. Hulk Hogan complied. Suddenly, it was Roddy Piper and Mr. T facing off. Roddy reacted with a notable discomfort, but then, with creeping sneer, embraced the moment. He crossed the mat slowly, staring through Mr. T the whole way. The loud-mouthed bully, realising the littlest guy in the mat had just been offered to him an otherwise an empty mat. As they came together, Roddy pressed his forehead into T's, grinding him into him, 
until they exchanged slaps across the face. Roddy turned and signalled timeout to Patterson, then spun and kicked T hard in the stomach, and the amateur wrestling began. It quickly led to a moment Roddy rolled. When Mr. T picked him up across his shoulders in a fireman's carry, cathartic for the fans, the moment where the actor had the wrestler at his mercy was immortalised on the front of the newspapers all over the world. Roddy could stomach taking a bump for the sake of the match, but he couldn't get past the sense that this was bad for business. From there, every potential breakdown of the rules were exploited to maximum effect. Orndorff and Roddy Piper double-teamed Mr. T in the corner. Muhammad Ali took a swing at Bob Orton when he tried to interfere. Roddy led his entourage towards the dressing rooms before being turned around by security, while Hulk Hogan urged Pat Patterson not to count the heels out during their absence from the ring. At the end of the so much theatre, Bob Orton jumped off the ropes to finish Hogan with his cast, but instead knocked out Orndorff, who was holding the champion behind in a full Nelson lock. Hogan dropped the leg drop and pinned Orndorff for the win. Roddy knocked out Patterson and stormed out of the ring in disgust with Ace in tow. A despicable, disgraceful display, Monsoon once called Roddy's antics. They were on full display in Madison Square Garden. Mr. Wonderful woke up, abandoned in the ring which set up a feud with Roddy and Bob Orton to follow. The next plot started. Work never stopped. Roddy said, When you watch that match, you watch when Mr. T finally gets to Hogan. I was late until I got just tired enough. I front face locked T, then boom, got over. You watch, he doesn't know what how to throw one fucking punch. He don't do anything. I take him down, ride him and that's it. That's why that son of a bitch worked. The match certainly did work. Over a million people watched on pay-per-view, eclipsing far beyond the success of Crockett's Starcade. McMahon kept his house, most importantly to Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan, still hadn't settled the score between them individually. Fans would keep calling for Roddy's head and paying to see the feud between Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan reprised. Bret Hart said, Roddy never let Hulk Hogan beat him. Roddy stood his ground on that, because once he beats him, the power is gone. He protected himself that way. If you really look back on those days, 
that protection of his stock at that time is what protected him for his whole career. He was right about it. I remember him saying, I don't need a belt. Other guys need him, but I don't need him. He was on a different plane, and he understood that. This shows that how far Roddy's sense of worth went and how the business really operates. How dead on he was about what he needed to protect himself. Brett continues. When there was Hogan and Piper, that was it. Just Hogan and Piper. There was nobody else. There was the Junkyard God, Dog and all them were kinds of other names. Orndorff and this guy and that. But it was Piper and Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan sort of broke the boundaries. But whenever you picked up Hulk Hogan doll, you picked up the Roddy Roddy Piper doll too. So Roddy Piper had a lot of clout. He had a lot of power. He was very valuable to them. Vince needed both Roddy and Hogan really bad. Like Starcade and McMahon's two previous supercars at Madison Square Garden, the WrestleMania undercard had been worth the price of admission. Filled with talent, Roddy wrestled over the, the previous decade in all parts of North America and Japan. <laughs> Yes, so, he wrestled all over the previous decades in all North America and Japan. He wrestled Andre the Giant, Ricky Steamboat, King Con Bundy and Junkyard Dog, Greg Valentine, even Roddy's old Portland friend and nemesis, Nature Boy Buddy Rose, had been wooed to New York. Appearing in the mast as the executioner versus Tito Santana. Cindy Lauper was back managing Wendy Richer. The only question left to answer was where do you go from there? The end.